previously on the Path Distilled podcast. So you're hitting at the motivational piece, but mm -hmm. it also reminds me of what I told you when we unfortunately heard of Anders passing, the, uh -huh. the memory that stood out to me was of the ping pong table that he bought us for the research lab. Because yeah, yeah. I think that's a side of the deliberate practice theory that no one really talks about, about the attention management, right? The energy management. Um, so interested to hear about the, the current work you're doing on the kind of rest recovery piece and the, the deliberate practice piece. Yeah, I mean, this this is uh, the origins of this are an interest in professionally. Again, uh, Kev, back to your point about, you know, producing papers and being tenure track and feeling under that pressure to produce and, and uh, you know, the culture, the language, the narratives of sociologists would like this, uh, the narratives used uh, in society to uh, discuss rest as a firm second to work, right? Mm -hmm. It is a virtue in our society to be seen to be working hard. In fact, it, it, you know, almost to a fault, it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It can be useless in fact, arguably, I would argue, it can be useless, but as long as you're working hard, you must be okay, you know. And, um, and then when you look at the literature, as I have been doing and, and trying to understand, you know, Erickson's original 1993 paper, but, but lots of other pieces beside, lots of other literature beside, um, that's not what, the theories said, and that's not what much of the evidence supporting them said. Um, you know, if we go to the what we know about exercise physiology, there's got to be a rest phase after a training phase for that supercompensation to occur, right? I was going to say periodization. They've always really had that in mind. Mm -hmm. Right. And so to start with is that. And then in the theory of deliberate practice, which has been a big influence on the work I've done, I think very few papers I don't cite that, that paper, <laughs> along with thousands of others, clearly. Um, um, you're right, it's, it's in there, isn't it? Um, and it's <clears throat> not only that, it's a big part so one of the things that I've been keen to do in the applied paper that we've got submitted, for example, is, is try and get away from this notion that, <clears throat> and this is, this is what people struggle with, of course, because we want very simple sound by particularly the applied level to get our concepts across. And of course, some things need a bit more than just a simple sound bite. They are slightly nuanced. If we look across years, then it seems that the people who accumulate or engage in greater levels of deliberate practice. Uh, let's turn it around because most studies do it the other way around. Those people who become experts and highly skilled seem to have accumulated more hours in deliberate practice when we do those hours counting exercises in sport and in other areas, even if there's been a few uh, challenges to some of that research recently. You know, that's the traditional take home message. Um, and so the, it's very easy at that point to say well, more practice equals better. Uh, uh, I'm going to get better. That's the route to expert performance. And more practice, of course, equals virtuous. You know, I'm going to be celebrated because I out-practiced everybody else. But when we look at it at the day level, the theory says no, less practice is better. In fact, the only way to accumulate those hours over the days for 15 years is to strictly limit the amount of high quality we practice to do per day. And so it is that, you know, the ballpark figure that is floated around is that four hours of very high quality, you know, high effort, high concentration work focused on improving very specific aspects of, of our performance. And even then we're supposed to uh, think that we, we shouldn't be doing that for more than 80 minutes at a time without engaging in some kind of low, cognitive effort activity or low and or low physical effort activity. Uh, and so that's four hours in 24 hours um, and 80 minutes at a time. And so that's not very much. I mean, of course it is when you're doing it, it hurts, right? But mentally or, or physically uh, it's effortful. Um, uh, and so um, that's one of the pieces I've been interested in because 
what it means is, and even the coaches and some of our studies on rest have done this, they'll say things like, you know, I don't know what uh, sometimes people moan about. We only have access to these people for, you know, and somebody had worked it out 18% of their weekly time. Uh, they'd actually worked out that the coach had. So, you know, as a, as a rebuttal to people saying, you know, you're, you're running him into the ground. Well, I only have them 18% of the time. You know? <laughs> um, and so, so but, but that's a very interesting point because the other, uh, I've got to do some difficult maths, 82% of the time, they have the potential at least to be engaging in restful activities or comparatively restful activities, and they should be. And so our question is, are they? When they are, what does that mean? And so we, we began to simply ask, uh, but we don't really know anything. And the, I felt that the literature in, in multiple areas gave us some insights. There was no real insights into the athlete experience of what they felt resting meant. So we began to ask athletes that in a first study, uh, and we used a, uh, a very high level uh, college athlete squad in the UK when I was at Durham, um, where uh, I think at the time we interviewed 18 women's field hockey players and 11 of them, 11 of them represented their country as well as played for the university a bit like, say, FSU's women's soccer team. There's always a few on there who are in national teams, mm -hmm. very high-end team. And so um, in their case, they were juggling this college uh, workload and in some cases a national commitment. Um, and so we asked them, well, what, what does it mean to you? And we came up with a kind of big six, we felt, in addition to sleep, which we felt had been done a bit in the literature, so we were less interested in unpacking Important to sleep, they, they would say, well, it's not just about sleep, is it? I mean, think about you. I mean, can you work from when you wake up to when you go to sleep every day? It can't be just about sleep. There were these other the commentaries surrounding the current work from home culture, right? I read something the other day that said it's not work from home, it's live at work. And I was like, yes, that's exactly right. true. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's interesting. You know, work, working from home gives us the potential flexibility to to engage in some resting experiences, but but also, yeah, employers like, oh, you mean you can be on call all day? <laughs> and so we began to ask them, you know, what, what does it, what does rest mean to you? You know, and we were keen to avoid the word recovery mm -hmm. because a rest may have other functions than recovery, just recovering from the next competition. But b, of course, recovery we felt had been loaded with kind of physical connotations. Mm -hmm. So they would say, you know, what are your recovery strategies? Ice baths and you know, and we're like, well, you know, that may actually not facilitate mental recovery. So we, we said rest. What, what does rest look like? You know, and it's been implicated a lot in the burnout literature mm -hmm. that the one of the preventions for burnout was more rest, and one of the and the go-to remediative strategy if you were burned out was rest. In fact, you know yourselves that if you were diagnosed with scoring high on burnout, then you're supposed to rest. And that rest period can be can take a long time before you stop scoring on those burnout measures, at least in the work um, uh, psychology literature. So so we said, well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to you to 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 um, to rest? And and we identified, you know, tentatively as being a first study, but six types of wakeful resting experience that our athletes reported. And, we look. We tended to focus on the day level, uh, the day level, so sort of a, a rest day. You know, if a rest day is going to be restful, what does that actually mean? And um, and then, but we also asked about things like longer breaks, natural longer breaks, so perhaps Thanksgiving in the U.S. or uh, Christmas in the U.K. or um, uh, the off season if if they had any significant off season and so on. But uh, so I'll just give you a couple of examples of those. Um, the, the first one, I think the one that was mentioned, that they actually had a language for. So one of the problems when you ask about something for which there's no current kind of go-to uh, language, you know, everyday folk language to describe this thing, um, is that they, they have trouble articulating it to you. Uh, but um, the athletes would say, uh, I just want some time where I'm not thinking about my sport. You know, in the season, there's so many things tied up in my sport, mm -hmm. both while training and competing, but invariably I live with my teammates and I'm on social media constantly with them. 
and we're called to numerous team meetings. And I'm supposed to be studying this, this you know, play formation at home. And, and the list goes on and uh, without a discussion about the NCAA, NCAA limits on, on engagement. Of course, mentally, there are no limits on engagement because there can't be, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, early in the season, fine. Midway through the season, you know, starting to get a little bit sick of thinking about sport. I just, just like a day where I'm not, no one mentions my sport and I love my teammates, but to be honest, they're getting on my nerves, you know, and uh, just like work, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love my work colleagues, but man, that, that weekend coming up is going to feel good. <laughs> uh, and not using the same routes to, to the gym, home gym, classroom gym, home, and, and so on. So first of all, it was not thinking about and thinking about something that isn't it for a while, thinking about something that isn't my sport for a while, almost to a woman that we interviewed that was one dimension that rest involved opportunities to not think about my sport for a while. That's how they would articulate the experience. Uh, another one I touched on there a little bit was um, tedium. So doing the same things over and over again. And we felt this was actually qualitatively different from always thinking. Mm -hmm. Always thinking is mentally fatiguing over time. Uh, and, and that sort of ruminative component as well. I'm thinking about it in my sleep. And some of these girls would lose their place on the first team. So they'd be benched or they'd actually be relegated. British systems have multiple teams. So you can sort of be relegated to the second team. It's kind of meritocratic. You know, if you're really good on the second team, you can be pulled up onto the first team. And so... But if you're on the first team, it means your place can always be lost to somebody else. You know, so you can be actually sort of relegated. So I'm always worried, you know, we have this great cohesive, the irony of team sports. We have this great cohesion, excellent relationship with my coach until I have a bad few games and I'm out of the team, you know. So, uh, and my teammates aren't going to necessarily step up for me, right? Because they're trying to keep their, their place. I had a colleague at Durham who always felt the whole team thing was a complete fallacy in those situations. You know? <laughs> um, um, uh, so another one was just the kind of tedious aspects of being an athlete. And, um, uh, and I, I bet if you ask endurance athletes in particular, swimmers uh, in particular, for example, who spend so much time swimming, you know, people who have that massive contact with their sport, where they can be in the pool three times a day, surrounded by exactly the same coaches, seeing exactly the same four walls, opening and shutting exactly the same locker, walking or driving exactly the same route, repeat. And if you're on any kind of directives about socializing, eating and sleeping, mm -hmm. which the average Div Division One athlete certainly is, you know, feeling you're eating the same things. You know, um, I've got a limited selection about what I can eat. I can't go here. I'm not supposed to be even seen here. You know, get back to the coach and seen here doing this. It's out. And then we introduce these watches that keep track of our activity in the middle of the night. They're to help you recover or they're to monitor you. You know, one of the two. <laughs> and so... Say, or now to see if you might have COVID. So. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, but tedium is another one of those. And, and so a rest from tedium, of course, was an injection of some kind of variety-based experience, which actually has recently been argued is part of uh, self-determination theory. Um, that novelty aspect, I think, relates to um, mastery experiences, to be able to go into unique and new environments and, and feel some engagement with new environments, I think, is a route to mastery or something. Uh, so there are some connections there with, with uh, cognitive evaluation, self-determination theory. So there were two experiences. So, you know, the take home messages for uh, very quickly for anyone applied in relation to those two experiences is if you take your athlete's average week, if you're a coach or a sport psychology practitioner and you want them to perceive a greater level of resting and thus restedness, to feel more rested, then thinking about ways to inject some variety into them, you know, on a rest day, uh, drive slightly across town and do a bit of work in a different coffee shop. You know that sl very slight vacation effect you almost feel mm -hmm. from doing that? Just a very slight different way. Take a different route to the gym. Don't walk or drive the same route. Um, the ultimate was get out of town. So, you know, don't have to go very far. 
to experience just a different view for a day that makes you feel like you've had a little bit of a vacation. And we think that that feeling is your experience of being more rested as a consequence of that variety-based resting process. Um, uh, and then of course, stopping thinking about, you know, how do we stop health athletes stop thinking about their sports for a while? Give them an activity, help them find for themselves an activity that, of course, they're intrinsically interested in doing that's unrelated to the sport. Schedule, help them schedule some time to do that. Say it's okay to do that. They don't have to be focused on their sport all the time. Uh, the dreaded one, can they not look at social media to contact their teammates for a while? Um, can they not go with their teammates? Can they hook up with another friend from across campus who they perhaps are on the same degree program with, who knows almost nothing about, and in fact, isn't interested in football or swimming? Even better, right? Going to ask you about your family or, you know, uh, they find out you like Sudoku, they're going to ask you about that. Um, that takes you away from your sport. In the average week for a D1 athlete, perhaps that's not possible for very long. But the extent to which you can do it, we think, in our new theory, predicts uh, feelings of restedness that we think is going to be useful for uh, recovery and recovery psychologically uh, in terms of mental fatigue, in terms of motivation. You'll be re-motivated, you're going to feel fresher and so on. There's so many um, ways of bringing this into other performance domains. Again, like the business context, right? I always hate to see commentary around meetings are stupid, get rid of meetings. Meetings aren't stupid. They're just not designed and facilitated for effectively from a psychological standpoint, right? So the same thing you're talking about. Well, if we do the same thing every time we meet, well, then right. I'm going to need some recovery from that, right? Yeah. And we introduce some novelty into how we approach that. Um, or as you're talking about, forget about the work meeting one time and just do something else together. I mean, it's very interesting. Uh, as a researcher, uh, what are the, if you can measure mental fatigue, you know, using mental fatigue indexes, some kind, you know, instruments, uh, there's probably research out there, but what are the mental fatigue costs associated with experiences of tedium? We have an experiment where we manipulate those things in, in a meeting type environment. Uh, I mean, clear organizational um, implications. In fact, <clears throat> that not thinking of, about my work for a while. When we try to look at, we use an inductive approach. So we have the athletes tell us what their experience of were of resting mentally. And then we try to look for um, their articulations of those experiences reflected back at us somewhere in the literature. And that not thinking about my sport for a while and switching off, they would use the term, I'm just switching off my sport and thinking about something else. It, that's a well-established concept in, in organizational psychology called psychological detachment, mm -hmm. which has only recently found its way into the sports psych literature, mainly through um, uh, Yannick Balk from University of Amsterdam and his team. And we just have a paper out with him in Journal of Applied Sports Psychology, uh, which everyone should read and cite uh, and, and use to influence what they do. But um, that's called psychological detachment. And they've been doing that in organizational psych for you know, 20 years or something, looking at uh, does self-reported psychological detachment after work, from work, predict self-reported recovery and motivation to return to work? Uh, how do people psychologically detach? Interestingly, some of the same things seen as what our girl said on the hockey team, you know, some of the recommendations are the work events after work are good. On one dimension, they are fun and we want to have fun, that helps us recover. But if a decent chunk, well, A, you're seeing the same faces for two extra hours on a Friday, mm -hmm. uh, who you've seen all week, and you've now seen for months, perhaps without a vacation. Uh, B, what is the modal most common, what is the most common topic of conversation? Probably going to be, not always, but, but I, I think a chunk of the time, it's probably still gonna be about, you know, even if it's jokey stuff about, valid accounts or you know how that boss just, just doesn't have a clue and you know so it's still worky talk isn't it and you go home sometimes realizing you spend another four hours 
of your free time talking about work. Um, and so that, that does exist in the organizational concept. That's called psychological detachment. Uh, that uh, a German Sonnentag um, is a big author in, in that area, lots, lots of studies uh, over time, um, publications in Journal of Occupational Health Psychology, these sorts of places. I think it's also interesting the tie to, you mentioned motivation, but the ties to expectation and self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, so take the meeting example, right? Like if meetings have become tedious and I don't feel like there's now there, there's this tedium and we always do it the same way, I'm going into these meetings with that expectation. Yeah, yeah. Therefore, self-fulfilling prophecy will be at work. Like the meeting will be not great or not useful, yeah. all that, because I'm now bringing that in. So it's this yeah. very cyclical process of, of trying to basically can we deviate on a different course here and, and change the pattern? Yeah, in fact, you know, our interest was in what happened sort of outside of the gym, uh, really, I suppose, on those rest days to get, to feel that rest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, but, but of course, that is a limited paradigm because potentially you could be resting while you're doing the work and that's even more powerful. But of course, um, you know, I'm still thinking that most of your time is outside of training and competition. So we were interested in, this huge chunk of time where skill acquisition happens in the brain, you know, memory consolidation, and, and I recover emotion. I, I have the potential to recover motivation and so on. But Damien Farrow and, and colleagues, uh, who he was at the Australian Institute for Sport, I'm not sure where he is now, still in Australia. Um, uh, he has, um, you know, framework for skill acquisition uh, for coaches that recommends that one of the considerations. I think he's got a handy acronym like Sport, and I think the T. <laughs> is tedium mm -hmm. and so even within your gym sessions and your skill acquisition sessions uh just being aware that whatever the skill acquisition literature says about how you learn motor movements it may be ignoring some of the motivational components yeah. um one of which is tedium so just having some variety and even the order in which you do drills or you know gym workouts doing it in a different gym Doing on a different playing field um, uh, may 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 reduce that tedium effect, mm -hmm. um, and clearly that you know happens in the boardroom as well as the uh, the field. You know, so um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And so that that study with the initial study and the initial kind of model, we're we're trying to to sort of test that in some respects to see the extent to which it is transferable to others experiences and so we we're interested in professional athletes so we've been interviewing uh current starters in the nfl um about what rest means to them uh with some hypotheses about the fact that there there may be some elements of course that they're also public figures mm -hmm. and where you and i can decide we're going to go walk to, for a walk around the block that may be harder for those individuals and so we're interested in see if there's any of those elements in that study is, is, are those barriers to resting psychologically that you're under scrutiny and some of that work is born out of my interest in reading about sports so Andrew Luck you know it's often said that he retired because of his injuries and, and that was uh, getting him down over time uh, but actually, if you if you read those uh, interviews and things with him, the journalist published, it was as much about the constant public and media scrutiny mm -hmm. about his recovery from those injuries that becomes tiring over time. And um, and there's a fair bit of work in uh, actually in the sociology of, of sport, um, where I can think of one interesting book that I read in the uh, a restaurant in the shopping mall um, that that talked about um, pro golfers who would say that one day they would like the media to ask me how I was. Not about you know because of this whole uh, performative machines idea, right? I just mm -hmm. over time I become objectified as this performative machine. So that every question is about my performance and when do you think you're going to get your performance back and how do you think your performance was there? And you know, one of the pro golfers you know, in the interview saying, "How about me? Anyone interested in me?" And so, you know, that's quite a well-established concept in 
in uh, some of those areas of sociology as well. So, um, well, and the rest piece has been vilified as well as you were saying, kind of in the always on culture. Yeah. Even, you know, in a different sport, like wasn't it years ago, several years ago when there was this media firestorm about, you know, finding out that NBA players regularly take naps during the day prior yeah. to performance. Like, what do you mean they take naps? Like, that's not the way they're getting paid for, <laughs> you <No>. know? <laughs> yeah, and, and um, in the Journal of Applied Sports Psych article, we have a, a section in that article called... Um, it's called something like why has been why has you know psychology arrest been overlooked mm-hmm. in the literature, and one chunk is devoted to that um, that sort of both subcultural in sport uh, norm of sort of uh, rest suggests weakness, mm-hmm. uh, you know rest is for the dead, <clears throat> um, you know all these sorts of uh, things that coaches. Uh, no, Coaches in the past, not good modern coaches, of course, but coaches in the past may say, and um, and and then culturally, of course, um, uh, being being busy is virtuous, and and uh, we're suspicious, in fact, of, of of people who aren't busy. They may be subversives, uh, uh, for God's sake, you know. And so, um, uh, uh, and so, and yet, that's not weirdly what these highly popularized theories about deliberate practice actually say. In fact, deliberate practice sometimes, you know, the deliberate practice framework sometimes used to support the idea that we should always be practicing and it's more practice and you're there hours before anybody else. And you can show you're there hours on Instagram before anybody else (laughs) and and all those sorts of things. The weird thing is, uh, and one of the reasons we put the paper into um, uh, general sports psychology in action uh, with Mark Williams is, is an, an Emma Leone is that because um, that's not what theory of deliberate practice says. Uh, so the opposite in some ways, you know, of that that thinking. There's some great work again, uh, some good research uh, showing how uh, athletes become acculturated over time to those notions and how the whole environment they're in, things people say, the stories people tell, the values mm-hmm. they hold, the objects around you, you know, the picture on the wall of the person who you know, doesn't, never gives up. Uh, I just had an exchange with a sociologist of sport from uh, Duke University um, about athlete A, which every sports psychologist should should watch. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask them for money later. But um, <laughs> uh, but, but uh, about the uh, interpretation of uh, Kerry, who's the gymnast at Atlanta who had the busted leg who mm-hmm. did where the, the commentator, I think her last name is Say, who was also top-level gymnast, uh, actually it was, it was a, a Tracy, uh, I think it's Tra- Travella, uh, also one of the top gymnasts, says, if you were a top gymnast and you were watching what she did, you would have a very different interpretation of her experience of that. So while she was a public hero, for any gymnast watching that, um, that was a sad moment for her. Uh, they said, Did, do you feel she really had a choice about walking back for that second attempt? Uh, and, and so it, it is that, um, you know, the sorts of things that are surrounding us and encourage us to do that. The, the uh, very high profile account of the, the, the woman whose name I will also forget, who uh, made those public declarations about the culture at mm-hmm. uh, the facility, Nike's facility in Oregon, mm-hmm. um, is exactly in line with that gymnastics experience uh, outside of the uh, sexual abuse, just the culture. Um, and so those things are very difficult to escape. That's the culture you're in. And, um, and you're, you're, you're socialized into thinking that is how people get on. And in fact, you know, over in the, the sciences, it suggests that actually it's not, and in fact, you know, it's very high quality practice that's very useful, followed by uh, high quality resting experiences me- mentally and physically, right? Well, I think, sorry, Kevin, but I was talking to Kevin about this a little bit earlier. I think this relates in a different way to how we were talking about it to the notion that 
humans are very challenged with the ability to hold what seem like two competing ideas in mind at the same time, right? Like we're very black and white, like it either is or it isn't. Right now that debate is like, we're either working from home all the time and that's gonna be great or we're gonna go back to work, right? And so um, I think that that has always maybe stumped people with this idea of deliberate practice. Like how do you hold in mind the fact that yes, you know, to your point earlier, you have to be a student of the game and devote intensity yep. and, and effort to that. And also make sure that you have rest in the ways of facilitating that. Yeah, my, my answer to that would be to understand this one concept, which, which is challenging to understand. And we, we want to use our reductive bias as, you know, a cognitive psychologist can explain that. We want to use, mm -hmm. we want to make things simpler than they are yep. to hold them in our head and remember them. But it is to, to consider the difference between what happens on a day which is to limit your deliberate practice. And the theory suggests that actually by limiting your practice over uh, per day allows you to adapt and recover physically and mentally and in terms of motivation properly to be able to engage it in it deliberate practice the following day and thus to engage in it over a long period of time where if you engage in it over a long period of time, you will out practice your opponent. But trying to do 10 hours on one day every day doesn't enable you to do that for more than about a week. That's the classic mistake, right? I'm all in. I'm all in. Grr. Uh, I'm socially validated by shouting I'm all in. And then a week later, I'm not all in because, uh, you know, my ankles bust. And, 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 and that's not what deliberate practice says. It says to be able to accumulate those practice episodes that are transformative, that do allow you to change. To be able to do that you've got to limit the amount per day and then make what you do a very high quality and the um, way that anders always talked about it all in from the perspective of attention which most people don't even realize right yeah. i'm out of practice but i don't even realize that i'm not even thinking about what i'm doing right exactly exactly and that's really well captured in our in our paper in the journal for psychology in action um uh, as well where we, we try and emphasize that I call it in the paper and with my students, of course, the lunch test. So if you're on your ninth, you know, if you've got 20, and this is the rationale for, of course, you know, mixing up practice schedules. But if you're, if, you're, if you've got 20 pups you're gonna make, and by your ninth, you're thinking about what you're gonna have on your sub for lunch, and not about the goal of the, this particular practice episode, that's a sign that you should stop what you're doing and rest and remind yourself what the goal of this session is because otherwise you're just going through the motions and, and there's always made that distinction between repeated repetitions of the same thing for the sake of it and of course to show that you turn up for practice and are virtuous versus doing anything that's genuinely useful. Mm -hmm. um, of course, one of the other incentives is, as he used to point out, that um, if you want an easy day, then you do just turn up and coast. It is harder to engage in that deliberate practice because uh, the, the system is entropic and doesn't want to change. And so you, we've really got to make an effort to change our system, to lay down those new mental representations or, you know, grrr, change the, uh, the muscle fiber in some way. And so, you know, the system doesn't really want to do that. It, it thinks we're not going to get food. It's a very old machine. It thinks we're not going to get food for, for a while and wants to preserve as much energy as possible, right? So, or just wants to do the things it's good at, right? To get that that hit of dopamine. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it wants, to, <laughs> it wants to remind ourselves of our performance accomplishments, uh, uh, definitely, and uh, and so avoids those those weak tasks. Yeah. This might be premature with your work on rest, but did you find any indication that those who went more uh, all in, I guess, during practice, did they also take rest? more intensely um, or intensively, I guess, did, or was it opposite? Did they have a harder time resting? I don't think we could say that from the, the methods we used. Uh, we certainly had some accounts of where it had gone badly wrong, uh, their level of, of practice, that I think anyone, any athlete with a high standard has experienced either a poor environment or poor decisions by themselves or poor coaching. And, um, and so we had athletes who reported health issues. We're doing this study now. We've just completed data collection. I think we have one. It's an interview study again, where lots of work on, on, on stress factors in coaches, for example, and 
coach lifestyles uh, and things like that. But we wanted to ask coaches once again what rest meant to them, what what were the experiences they had in their week that they felt were restful psychologically that ended up with them being more rested psychologically than less. And what, what do those terms mean? So all those watch questions. And so we did an interview study with, with uh, um, we will have 20, I think we have 19 interviews. Um, and, um, and we saw the, so some of the same, the same patterns there where a number of the coaches said they just, early in their career, they just got it wrong. Uh, and one coach reported, and of course this is all anonymous, one coach reported, um, uh, more than one coach reported, of course, seeing a physician. But one coach went to the physician and said, these are my symptoms, whatever is wrong with me. And, uh, and so the physician sounded like a good physician, so well, tell me about your lifestyle. And she described her working week as a high level coach in the, in, in, the, in the division one. And the, the doctor said, you know, it was like, that's unsustainable. You know, as a human being, that is unsustainable. And your symptoms sound like panic attacks. That, that is, that's, that, that, those are panic attacks. And so, and, they, and then they said, of course, the, the terrible word, what you need to do is to stop working for at least two weeks. And I'll see you in two weeks and see if that's better. And the coach is like, you know, we're right in the middle of the season. We've got a chance of, you know, reaching X level here. I can't do that. And, and the, the doctor's like, well, that's a choice you've got to make because you're, you're, you're dicing with something, you know, more serious here. And so we had that in more than one coach who described that scenario. So very clearly they got that wrong here. Um, um, and, um, and then we had coaches who, who, who used some uh, old school language about you've just got to grind it out. You know, it's brutal, not for everybody. You've just got to grind it out. But even then, when we pressed them a bit, uh, one of the same coaches said that he or she enjoyed lovely international vacations at least once a year. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, there are an awful lot of Americans who barely string three days of vacations together in, in, in the average year. So that actually sounds pretty good to me. You might be under a lot of pressure there, but <clears throat> he or she talked about uh, some pretty lengthy international family vacations. Uh, some of our coaches were reasonably well paid and, um, and were able to go, go to these places. And, and so when we unpicked a little bit, uh, even some of these very, uh, the coaches who articulated these very grind type positions, it seemed that um, there was still some, some things they did which sounded like they took their mind away from their sport. <clears throat> they got to see different groups of people. They weren't constantly in their coach's office or on the field and so on. Well, it's such an interesting cultural dynamic too, right? I, I was talking about this recently with my mom who for her job got to travel the world and she was always surprised by, in terms of this sense, the stark contrast between how, for example, Spain, right? And some of the European countries yeah. approach this on a daily basis versus the US, right? Where the, that's the US model. You either take your vacation at one point in your year or not at all. Yeah. Whereas yeah. these other countries really strategically implant it in their days. Yeah. I mean, there are cultural differences uh, between countries, but even within countries that, you know, I think what's interesting, there are cultural differences even across sports in the way those things mm -hmm. are handled sure. and um, I, you know um, premiership uh, soccer for example the EPL um, is well known for of course being being traditionally at least quite resistant to some of the newer ideas that you know some of the Olympic sports uh, are, can be quite progressive on on their, their approaches to these things um, and, and sometimes those, those sports that have those um, uh, machismo cultures associated with them um, are, I think, more resistant to acknowledging the idea that you might like to jigsaw puzzle on your day off. Uh, this isn't going to be banded around the, the locker room uh, when your job is to, to hit large people, right? So, um, you know, so there are some more uh, 
there are some resistance to those ideas. So I think there are actually big differences between countries, but even within countries between sports. In speaking with our coaches, um, they would also talk about even some of the veteran coaches we interviewed who were in their 50s and 60s. Um, a couple of them were talking about how they think actually that things are slightly different for the younger coaches coming through, in part because there are better coach education programs um, that do recognize that if you're going to have a lengthy career and, and obtain these mental representations, we might say in the every, everyday world, pick up the experience you need, that it's useful not to burn out and, and rest is one way to achieve that. Um, but one of the other problems, of course, the difference between the sports, the basketball schedule per year is dramatically different to trying to think something that ends more more quickly. I mean, even, even college soccer is done in the first semester, right? Uh, my understanding, I don't follow basketball uh, at all, which immediately will have about half your audience switching off, I'm sure. But, um, <laughs> uh, but my understanding is that even at the college level, that's a really long um, um, uh, season. Or you could go the opposite length and look at something like baseball, right, which is the longest season probably right. out of any sport. And then some others that are year-long, right, and don't yeah. have a season. Yeah. So there are even differences between the sport structurally and the opportunity to go and do these things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I think that's, I think that's uh, interesting. The NFL guys we've spoken to uh, still talk about those windows. Um, but one of them insisted to us that he's all about football. He's fully in. Uh, and, and if you're not, you shouldn't be doing it. And then later in the interview, uh, uh, said that uh, when his team didn't make the playoffs, which doesn't give away who his team is because most don't make the playoffs. <laughs> but uh, he was really pleased because his weekend opened up. Uh, you know, he, was, he was very sad he lost. But within about 10 minutes, he's like, oh, I'm going to go away that weekend. I've been wanting to do X. And I was like, oh. I thought you were all in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I thought you were all in. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. You're not just going to be watching game film that weekend. <laughs> yeah. to work out how you could have done things better. No, apparently, I'm going to make it up now, not to give away who it is. But apparently, you're going fly fishing in Oregon. So, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, for the sake of uh, keeping the interview short, uh, we should probably do one of the final questions. Uh, if, if we were to uh, ask you to put your percentages on what is nature versus nurture and what role each places in performance, how would you break that down? Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. I mean, I think there's still a chunk that's, that, that's nature. I think we are built differently. Um, 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 so I think there's a chunk that's nature. I think it's still worth acknowledging, of course, that the brain is still the most plastic of our organs, right? That we can change hugely. So even though uh, uh, I have a different nose to you, Kev, you have a cute little button nose and I have a large <laughs> comp, um, uh, uh, um, and we can't do much about that. Um, of course, the cautionary note about that is that, and the same with height, um, that our brains, are, our brains are much more plastic. They can be changed much more. And so we, we can't use the rest of our physical body as quite the analogy, I think, there. Uh, I think there are probably still some, some genetic influences. Uh, I mean, anyone who, who reads, you know, uh, uh, Pinker's work and points out all those, those statistics and so on. Uh, admittedly, he used everyday examples, and Anders would always strive for the expert performance examples of saying that was a qualitatively different analysis. Uh, I think there are some differences. But, um, um, but in the right circumstances, where you have your entire life, uh, where you have where that full resource strength is satisfied, so you have all the resources at your disposal, which even in the richest country in the world, we know is only applicable for a percentage of the population, mm -hmm. then, then I think you know, the opportunities to, to do dramatically different levels of performance are maximized, right? And so we we can be placed in environments that allow this, this, this relatively plastic organ to change maximally. Um, um, but I think that's a less interesting uh, debate than is 
even if we accept there are genetic differences, what I'm interested in as somebody who is interested in skill acquisition, perhaps more than expert performance, isn't the potential for deliberate practice and quality instruction and good resources and the right organizational environment, of course, that's being highlighted in all these cases in the sports, like the running and the gymnastics, the right organizational environment to provide us with the potential for change, to allow us to, to, um, to acquire skills and to remind us we can, to a large extent, do that if we have those things in place. Um, and so I think that's the much more interesting part is that um, of that of that debate is actually to ignore the debate and focus on the potential for change in doing the things we want to do um, that interest us. Well, I think that's that's even coming out in the literature by some of our colleagues right in the UK who are studying resilience now and taking it away from looking at resilience in the person and more about the environment that would create the yep. possibility for the development of resilience. Okay. Yeah, and I think that uh, um, you know there's been there's been much more interest in in that organizational side of things. Um, um, and I think that's a, that's a very good thing. And, uh, and even further up, the sociologists, of course, are interested in those cultural things. Mm -hmm. Culturally, how do we present values that show that uh, uh, um, ways to move on and get better, simultaneously acknowledge those constraints, that this idea that anyone can be anything is truer for the people who have the access to those resources, right? Um, and so how do we, how do we structure a society that <clears throat> allows that to happen and, and so on. So I think, you know, from the individual, it's like the original critique of psychology is it, it is a science of the individual and usually the individual's brain. And, and so considering all the organizational level and the, the sort of cultural and societal levels mm -hmm. simultaneously, I think is very useful uh, to, to do um, to enable us to get better so um, yeah, that's that's my that's my interest there, Kev, and uh, that was one of the reasons for writing the Journal of um, Sports Psychology in Action uh, paper, which of course any of the reviewers reading this they'll know who the author is. <laughs> now, obvious because it's still under review, but um, um, uh, is is uh, trying to remind people what those principles actually are and how they they've been they've been confused. Um, yeah. Um, so if you had to take all the research that you've done over the years and distill it down to a couple tangible takeaways for people that are listening, what, what might be some of those things that you would? Well, I think one of the really easy takeaways from the rest uh, work we've been doing is that um, a rest day does not mean just a physical rest day. Uh, a rest day, or at some point in the week, some rest time means psychological rest. A really quick way to provide that as an example is that if a coach suddenly decides if Wednesday is your rest day, that your rest day is a great opportunity to take a look at some game film at the venue, training venue, um, then psychologically that's not a rest day um, because you didn't get a break from thinking about your sport on that day. You didn't get an opportunity to satisfy some of those autonomy uh, feelings. I'd like a day just kind of for me where I do what I want was one of our other uh, findings. Um, I'm driving the same route to the gym. Uh, it's tedious. I'm doing that. That was the only day where I had the opportunity to not do exactly the same thing as I did the rest of the days. And now the coaches ask us to come in. Um, recovery watches um, may not help you recover for the same reasons. I'm still thinking I'm on. Somebody's going to be looking at the data. Mm -hmm. Two-thirds of the way through the season, I'd actually like to go to a late party. And I think that would actually help me motivationally to the end of the season. Um, is that a bad thing? Um, it may not be possibly a bad thing. It may help at that point to do something slightly different. It may help break the monotony. And yet now I'm wearing a recovery watch and the coach is going to see, or usually the coach's assistant, is going to wonder why there's lots of physical activity data at 3 a.m. Or bad HRV data the next morning. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, um, and so, you know, um, 
I think that's one of the important things is the idea of psychological recovery may be a different thing that's been overlooked in relation to physical recovery, right? And so those aren't the same things. Um, uh, the other work I, I think is, um, um, I think a, a, a more well-worn one, less original, but I think it is still to remind people, remind people about that, about deliberate practice, that, that less, doing less and doing it better in terms of practice is, is much better than being busy and showing, showcasing that you're busy. Um, and so I think that's a very useful take home um, to, to focus on very carefully on those things. It's exactly in line with liberal practice theory, I know, but to focus very carefully on that, those things that you know are the things that need to be sorted out, the difficult problems that are gonna take time and you're gonna be thinking about them for some time and they're gonna be hard work that are gonna elevate you and then because they're effortful, allowing yourself time to rest after it, not taking on 29 other things because they're not going to allow you the recovery <clears throat> to get back to this one important thing. So I think it's about that focus on the quality of things that will advance you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to share your expertise. Uh, no worries. And, um, uh, you know, I'd be interested to see uh, where the podcast goes and any feedback you have over time about uh, uh, the way it's been received and who's picking it up and uh, and those sorts of things is interesting to me. It's especially during the, the COVID situation. Uh, <laughs> I, one... I, I listen to a podcast. You know, that's how modern I am. I listen to one <laughs> podcast about Sir Francis Galton in the history of psychology. <laughs> Because there's a lot of podcasts on the, out there for sure. One of the things we are interested in doing down the road is doing kind of like a, various versions of panels. Um, uh -huh. So we've talked about you know, bringing you and some others on to just discuss, discuss not just the research you're doing or the things you know, but some of the things that we're actually getting from people who don't know all this stuff, right? And are just living these lives, telling us what they think, you know, from their own stories. Yeah. And I'd certainly be... If, if any athletes or former athletes watch this or coaches or people in workplaces who, who, who resonate, you know, if they have any, if their experiences resonate with any of those experiences of rest, like I'm always thinking about my sport, these sorts of things, I'd be very interested to hear from them uh, uh, because we want to learn as much as we can about that, those, those issues, you know, so um, in the same way that, Anders used to have books about Whitney Houston on his <laughs> shelf because somebody once told him that Whitney Houston could suddenly instantly sing brilliantly. And he was determined to dig that out and research whether that was the case or whether there was a developmental trajectory over time. <laughs> I'm interested in those sorts of cases, you know. So, um, yeah, feel free to, to contact me at Florida State University. Thanks again. No, thank you. Best of luck. And uh, it's great to, to catch up. and. I'm sorry we won't get to catch up in person, Lauren, at, at AFSP in October. The Path Distilled is hosted by Kevin Harris and Lauren Tashman, created and produced by Kevin Harris. The content is copyrighted by The Path Distilled, all rights reserved. <laughs>